HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, this is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of Heritage Radio Network, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to the only pizza-powered radio station in the entire world. For a decade, HRN has broadcast live from two shipping containers inside Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, telling the most entertaining and educational stories about food and drink across 35-plus weekly shows. HRN has made it this far thanks to the support of listeners like you. If you like what you hear, show us some love by going to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. With your help, HRN will be able to keep the lights on, the mics hot, and the pizza coming for the next 10 years of food radio. Welcome to the Grape Nation for Heritage Radio Network on tour. We are in Seattle at the Grand Tasting at Taste Washington, uh, a food and wine lover's wonderland celebrating Washington State. Uh, my guests today, I have a terrific little panel here, are among the finest wine people, winemakers, wineries in Washington, and I sought them out. So let me introduce everybody, and they'll tell you a little about what they're doing. Um, Greg Harrington is a master sommelier. He is the founder and co-winemaker of Gramercy Cellars. Marty Club is managing winemaker and co-owner of La Cole in the Walla Walla Valley. And Alex Stewart is the winemaker and enologist at Quilcita Creek. So that's everybody. I think what I want to do is let me go around the table, and I'm begging you guys to give me the elevator pitch and just tell me a little about yourself and about the winery. And there is a story there, and we'll get into everything. So let's start with Greg. All right, so I guess I'm a test subject on keeping it short. So yeah, I'll kick uh, you under the table exactly. if you go too yeah. long. Uh, quick story. Sommelier, New York City, deciding what to do with the rest of my life. Come to Walla Walla on vacation. Say, taste Syrah. I have to move here to make Syrah. And that's literally what I did in 2004. So we do 8,000 cases, primarily Syrah, little Bordeaux varieties. Um, and that's really, that's the elevator pitch of, of what we do. But, and you've obviously had this obsession for Rhone blends and all that. I mean, that's why you were intrigued by this. Yeah, everything Roan, and, and it was easy to see that, that you know, you come to Walla Walla, you look in the Yakima Valley, you look near Red Mountain, that, that Roan varieties were going to prosper depending on, no matter what you want to do. We're going to talk about that in a minute. All right, Marty, you see how we did it? Yes, I he see. even talked fast, but you don't have to talk fast. Okay, well, let's see. Um, I guess I'm the old guy on the table. No, uh, I'm no, older. No, no. Oh, you Go are. Ahead. I don't believe it. Um, so our winery started 36 years ago in 1983. Uh, by my wife's parents, Gina Baker Ferguson. We bought the old Frenchtown Schoolhouse just outside of Walla Walla. 
called it L'Ecole, which is the school in French, school district number 41. So that's kind of the background on the name. Uh, having been in the business now for that period of time, we have grown a little bit. Uh, today we're about 50% of state grown. We make about 45,000 cases and we sell wine throughout the United States in about 20 countries. So we have a little more visibility than some brands. Okay. So do we all agree Marty's the OG at the table? <laughs> Is that fair? Yeah, but he doesn't look like the old. No, no, no. So. All right, Alex, quickly. Uh, Alex is, uh, Marty's the oldest maybe, Alex is the youngest, but that doesn't matter, we're not talking about that. Tell me a little about yourself in the uh, winery. Quincy I'd just like to say I'm, I'm humbled to be here in front of you guys. This uh, we got some legends here, but uh, so Colcita Creek started in 1979 by Al Galitzin. He moved up to Washington uh, from California and decided to make his own wine under the tutelage of Andre Chelichev and uh, his son Paul took over in 92 as winemaker and kind of elevated things, took it to new heights, and I just recently got promoted to winemaker in the last month, so here we are now. But you've been at the winery or in and out for Yeah, so I, part I started there right? part-time in 04 and full-time in 09 with a brief stint at uh, Fresno State to get my enology degree and came back. Good stories. All right, so let's talk about Washington wines. Let's talk about why Washington State is an ideal growing region for growing Bordeaux varietals and Rhone varietals. We'll start with you, Greg, because you you came here to pursue the whole Rhone thing and all of that. Yeah, but I, but you know it's funny um, with Cabernet. I can I can tell a, a real quick story. So my first sommelier job was in Nap was in San Francisco, and uh, the restaurant I won't name loved working there, but. One of the first things I bought, I was 22 years old, the sommelier just left, and I bought a case of Quilcita Creek, and I bought a case of um, Delille Harrison Hill. And I got called into the office by the general managers and the uh, owner of the restaurant. And they're looking at the invoice, and they're like, what are these? I'm like, those are awesome. They're from Washington. What are blah, these? Blah, blah. <laughs> and, uh, and they're like, there's not enough wine in Napa for you to buy? I'm like, well, yeah, but, but the ones in Washington are great. So um, I got in trouble and I wasn't allowed to buy Washington wine anymore, um, but I still did it anyway. But you know, for me, what I, what I love about Washington, you know, whether it's Bordeaux varieties or, or Rhone varieties, is we can, we can plant our, 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 our flag firmly in new world fruit and old world earthiness. And, and you know, we talk about climate, we can talk about a lot of things, but you know, it's, when you look at everything that makes up Washington wine, it's, we're halfway between the old world and the new world, and that's really what I want to drink personally, and that's what attracted me to, to Washington State. Right, I mean, that, that's sort of a mission statement for you. Exactly. In that sense. Marty, I mean, you've, you've been here longer than anybody, and I'm not knocking you every time about the age thing, but obviously there was an attraction as to, you know, why to set up. I mean, why was this the perfect place to, you know, put the flag down? Yeah, well, my um, my father-in-law, Baker Ferguson, was um, a real true wine lover, um, and he um, he was in the banking industry. He he was loaning money to people, growing apples, and I think he knew enough about wine from having studied it and consumed wine to know that we had the right growing conditions: the sunshine, the glacial soils, the volcanic soils, the heat units, but more importantly, maybe the big diurnal temperature change, 
that allows us to preserve acidity and build structure in the but, wines. But explain that quickly, what a diurnal. Well, it, it, in, during the day, it can get really warm, but at nighttime, it cools, it down, cools so. down dramatically. So they call that a diurnal temperature change. And you did might you know that, it, Alex? I did. Actually, okay. I got a, a, a quick anecdote. Um, we had a, a little bit of a heat wave just the other day, and the diurnal, diurnal shift was about 90 degrees at one of our sites. Really? Recently? Between, between the high and low temp, yeah. All right, so Marty, finished. So you have... Well, basically, it, when, you, when you look at the key core elements of what constitutes what people think is great growing conditions for wine grapes, Washington State has it in spades. Right. And, uh, you know, we, we, we're in eastern Washington, so it's also very dry. And um, rain sometimes can be very problematic, particularly during the fall harvest season. What, you know, what can really mess up a, a vintage in Bordeaux is rain. Right. And it starts raining before they get all the grapes off. Well, you don't that, get that doesn't happen in Washington State. So we right. have the, the luxury of a long growing season uh, with great balance, great acidity. And I think that's what, when Greg was talking about, you know, having wines that look more like the old world, it's partly due to those attributes. Right. Alex, add into that. I mean, you're making the wine now. You know, in a good way, you were dealt, you know, the property, I, I, the wine, the history and all of that. I was very fortunate and I'm, I'm humble to be where I'm at. Um, I've been walking in the shoes of some great winemakers that have paved the way for me for sure. Um, but yeah, to piggyback on, on both these guys, I mean, Washington's arid desert climate, but we, we're, we have the heat units to get these, these grapes physiologically right, but we also have the water. We're not bound by these laws and regulations. So, I mean, we, I hate to say manipulate, but we can manipulate uh, so much physiologically, biologically, um, and we're not confined by uh, this, this governorship. Right. Um. I get this every now and then, but it's it's definitely not a major, you know, argument or whatever. But every now and then, because I'm the wine guy among my friends, um, and I push all wines, sort of like you did at the restaurant. You know, what are you buying this stuff for? You know, and I make my friend. People draw comparisons to Washington State wines, you know, a lot of the Bordeaux varietals and even the Rhones, to Napa, because that's what they're familiar with. You know, for some reason, they're a little more familiar with that. Um, if I gave you the opportunity to make the comparisons or differentiate, what would you say? First of all, is that a dumb question? Can, can I, 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 have, I have something that, I, that I'd like to say just on that real quick. Uh, first comparison is price. The price of fruit in Napa is astronomical. And we, we, have, we are fortunate enough that... We have some fantastic grape growers up here that are producing world-class fruit for a small fraction of the price. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this right now. No, no, now. I mean, fairly. Nobody's yeah, going to argue a, that, right? It's a land price issue. Yeah. I mean, to this day in Napa, to acquire property is, you know, off the charts. So price, certainly fair. Well, uh, first off, we're all in the wine business. We all know We want everyone love, to drink wine. We, we love wine from good wine-producing regions, and that unquestionably includes Napa Valley, Sonoma, you name it. Bordeaux. So uh, we, I think all of us here respect uh, the quality of the wines being made in California, but we have something unique. 
we're at a latitude much further north, and that really puts us on a, a cusp, you might say, where we traditionally have had really hard winters, uh, a cool spring, the sunny, warm, catch-up summer. So our, our life cycle of our vines is quite different. And I think because we're on the cusp, that gives us an opportunity to have a longer growing season, to make these uh, more structured red wines and uh, retain better acidity in the fruit. And I think that's what gives us the opportunity to have a little bit of that new world fruitfulness, but have the structure and the backbone, the ageability that, right. that looks more like old world wines. Greg, can you add to that? Yeah, I think you know one of the things, um, honestly, the, like, you're talking about Darnell Schiff. You want to play a, drink, a great drinking game, come to Walla Walla, and every time someone says Darnell Schiff, take a drink, you won't make it past <laughs> lunch. It's, it's an awesome, awesome really? time. Yeah. But, um, but it's actually true, and you know, someone described to me one time, it's like tomato sauce. So, and what people don't know about vineyards, and I'm gonna really dumb down what vineyard ripening is, let's say they ripen between 70 and 90 degrees. So during the day in, in Walla Walla, or most of Washington, we're actually hotter than Napa Valley, but definitively at night we're colder. So where in Napa the vineyard may not shut down, every single day our vineyard is starting and stopping ripening. So if you look at like tomato sauce, you know, you can fire up the heat, or keep medium-high heat the entire time, um, and you're gonna get one type of sauce, or you're gonna go really, 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 really low and cook it for seven or eight hours, and you get a totally different type of sauce. Both are great. I have a preference for one or the other, but but I think that, that you know, if you can keep the vine, the grape on the vine longer and still retain balance, anyone can pick late and, right. and you know, not get High out of balance, but if you can retain whatever. that balance, then, you, then I think you have something special. Right. Um, while we're on the subject, I mean, is, is climate change, global warming, if anyone believes that, is that an issue? Has that changed harvest times? I, I mean, uh, Sorry, I, I, I think that's a huge factor. I mean, you only have to look so far as the past two years down in California. And I mean, look at look at the the wildfires that they've been having down there. I mean, that's that's definitely indicative of um, the the drying out down there. And unfortunately, I mean, we're kind of coming to terms with that up here, too. But um, yeah, I, I think that we we have these cooler falls that tail off and we can just hang, 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 hang our fruit without any sort of frost pressure, well, minimal frost pressure, and get the grapes exactly where we want them and just physiologically perfect. So yeah, you, so you, I, have, I, you I, have the longest experience with the most vintage. Okay, so uh, here's my comment. Uh, back in the 80s, we worried a lot more about the hard Arctic winters where you'd actually see real vine damage because it would, we'd go below zero and it would actually, you know, uh, not kill the vines, but do structural damage to the vines. Um, I think global warming has basically uh, lessened the, the severity of the winters that we have. And the result of that is we now are not seeing damage from, from the winter injury and we're able to crop fruit more frequently. And, um, we, we haven't really seen the, the heat in the summer go that much higher. What we've seen is the winters being a little bit warmer. And so while retaining that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably have to play Greg's drinking game now, that diurnal change. You're right. Uh, Here we go. Um, you know, basically, I think we're, we're in a position where um, we're more consistently making better quality fruit. So two things. 
you agree with that, most of it, and what would you add to that? Yeah, I, I totally agree with what Marty's saying. And, and But maybe seven or eight years ago, the Master Wine Exam, which is this crazy hard wine exam that if you like to write about wine, you go take this exam. They had a very interesting question. The question was, um, vineyard management versus clim clim global warming, discuss. And I'm not a uh, global warming denier by any stretch of the imagination. And I believe that we've kind of balanced out our vineyards or the climate. Um, for me though, I think as winemakers and, and viticulture people, we're really guilty of trying to outsmart mother nature. So basically creating these this vineyard architecture where all the leaves are in one area, all the fruit is in another area, it's unshaded, and you're really putting the vine in an unnatural state. Whereas, you know, back in, you know, you look at the Cabernet being grown in Napa in the early 80s and 90s, you know, these were pretty ugly vineyards. I mean, California sprawl. You know, right. everything was shaded and leafy, and, and I think in our farming, we've gone back to making it a little more ugly, a little more shaded, and I'm, I'm so happy with the way the fruit is, is coming out, just basically going back to the natural state of the vine. So we... We all agree there's definitely an issue with whether you call it global warming, climate change, something is changing. I mean, you, you specifically, but it almost sounds like for now, for where you're at geographically, it's somewhat of a benefit. Uh, well, at least in I terms know, of the hard, the hard winter, it, the hard, we have fewer, harder winters and that is definitely a benefit. Right. But is there any negative offsetting that or not really? I think we're, we are dealing with um, a, a little bit earlier uh, ripening of the fruit and that creates a few challenges because uh, to stay really balanced, we need to try to stretch our harvest further into the fall. And But what Greg's talking about is using canopy balance techniques to try to delay harvest, to delay moving into Verizon, and I think we are learn we're getting better at doing that kind of thing to basically keep ourselves ripening our fruit, in, you know, in September, October. So just quickly, just not to tell me what canopy management is. So it's basically you know how you set up your vine. If we're right. looking at a wild fruit, you know, wild vine, you're going to see it. It's going to grow up a wall, and you're going to have a lot of leaves with a little bit of fruit. You know, a wild vine doesn't want to create fruit; it wants to grow clusters. Yeah. So. So, um, so the typical thing, it's called vertical shoot position, VSP, really geeky word. But we're basically, everything's in a line and it's straight up and down and the leaves are all at the top and all the fruit is about waist level. So the idea, this was created to maximize sun exposure because it was cold. Um, so um, you, you ended up in a situation where you had maximum sun exposure. Um, and that's really, uh, and you can do different things in different places. Sometimes it looks like a little bush in, in some parts of France. Sometimes it looks like it's, it's straight up, up and down wall. Right. And there's all kind of things that, that you can do. So but it could be used to protect from the sun or to let more yeah, so, sun so, in either way, yeah, right? So basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to balance the energy of the vine through photosynthesis on basically growing the vine and creating fruit. So we're trying to make the vine say, hey, this isn't the most great place to, to live so what the vine does is, is it, it, create, it grows grapes to say, hey, let's move. And right. it moves through birds and animals and, and, and things like that. Right. A, a couple of techniques that we've been implementing, um, a lot higher density planting, plantings, stressing the vines a bit more so they'll fruit earlier. Um, and with that, what Greg was talking about is the, the canopy's acting as its own shade for itself. So as the sun's getting to the hottest part of the day is, I mean, 
the canopy is grown up to shade the next row, the next row over, and uh, yeah, keep the keep the fruit at least um, out of the sun. Yeah, so I'm I'm going to change the topic to irrigation management because it's something that uh, is unique in Washington. We, our rainfall is usually only about eight inches a year. Most of that happens in the winter, and that means uh, the vast majority of our growing season happens in a rain-free environment. Dry. And it's dry. And um, so I, I like to think of the way we irrigate as playing a game of Chinese water torture on our vines. Drip we irrigation? Really, we can keep our yields back, the berry size smaller. You can actually shut down shoot growth by how you manage your, your water. And so it really is a, a tremendous tool in the toolbox to producing higher quality fruit. And it's something unique to Washington because it is so dry here. Now, and, and, and to touch on that a little bit, I mean, we have the ability to irrigate as much or as little as we possibly want. I mean, we have the water. And, right, there are no issues with access to water and, or whatever. And one more thing that we've been doing to uh, combat climate change is when we're seeing these, you know, 100, 105 plus degree days, we've installed overhead misters to co actually bring down the, um, the temperature in the canopy as much as eight degrees, which is pretty significant. Now, Marty, when you talked about, you know, low rain counts, dry, isn't that a positive towards um, disease, pests and all that? I mean... Okay, so, um, you know, the winters are cold, even though they're not as cold as they were, uh, you know, 50 right. years ago. Um, but the cold winters basically knock back your pest pressures because they, they really don't overwinter very well. So, for example, um, we don't have a glassy wing sharpshooter up here. Um, there is, we technically don't really have uh, much phylloxera, uh, and so we can grow our vines on their own roots. So the hard winters actually keep the pests down, and the fact that it's so dry means we also don't really have mildew pressures. So we're in this unique position of being able, if we choose to be, to do organic, uh, sustainable farming practices where there is not, we're not having to throw a lot of herbicides and pesticides. We can be really clean and healthy in the way we're managing these sites. So that, that was my next question. I mean, a perfect lead in um, the issue of sustainability. Um, you almost set it up that the way the climate, geography and everything, it, 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 it kind of happens naturally. Um, has it always been that way? Is there a movement towards it? I mean, is that sort of automatic, you know, where sustainability is, I wouldn't say built in, but you have, you know, the perfect conditions for that. Oh, I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, if, if you can grow biodynamic in, in, in Loire, Loire Valley of France and Germany, you can grow biodynamic or at least organic in, in Washington State. Because um, it's harder there? Yeah, because, because, the, because we're so much less humid. And, right. And it's just, a, it's just a, we, we have a way more forgiving They have climate. more challenges. Yeah, and you know, I think in this day and age, if you're not at least thinking about sustainability, and even better, you know, thinking about organics, I think you're just way behind the curve because you go to the major wine cities of the world, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in Asia or the United States, someone is going to ask you on your, your farming practices in terms of, of sustainability or organics. Right. Alex, I mean, is that important and an issue? Yeah, I, I, I think that especially within um, the, the Washington, Western Washington community, there's this um, desire 
our drive toward organic. I mean, look at look at Ballard, look at Fremont. Like we're we're kind of a hippie culture up here. So, um, <laughs> we 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 try to um, minimize. Yeah, definitely. Like the amount of um, sprays we're doing each year, um, not necessarily uh, going toward entirely organic, but. Um, just happen to be... A more conscious be, effort? Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, of is course... There, is there pressure, there, Marty? I mean, do you have to be organic so, or bio? Oh, or, well, I think the, I mean, con- is there the a, consumer... A, a push towards that? or Well, Greg, Greg could probably comment on this, but there's, there's a growing audience of people that want to see limited use of any kind of chemicals. And I think we're, we're fortunate to be in a position because of our winters and lack of rainfall that we don't have the pest... Right and mildew pressures that do allow us to use really soft products, saver soaps and various things like that. And so I think that uh, since the interest is there and we have the ability to do it, it's it's something that is being pursued more and more. Right. Um, I want to ask you about something, and I'm not looking to start a fist fight here. Um, Greg's rolling up his sleeves. No, 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 no. no. There's... And this plays to you, Marty, and to you, Alex. And it's not a shot by any, you know, thing. But there's, in my travels, there's been a movement, and I'm not saying it's fast or anything, towards a little more restrained wines. And that's not necessarily the description of, you know, what we, what you do up here and all that, especially your trademarks. Um, is that an issue? I mean, you make the wines you make, or does the consumer want something dialed back a little? Or you... Well, I think, uh, you know, it's very interesting because the whole wine industry goes through cycles. Um, if you, That's if you a actually, fair point. If you, if you actually look at kind of the cycle that Napa Valley went through, uh, they were making these super ripe, super... Unctuous. Unctuous, high alcohol, big fruited wines that are delicious, but you wouldn't really use the word restrained in that context. No. So as as we look in the direction of wines of better balance, uh, we are picking a little earlier. I think Greg Greg's entire focus is making more restrained, better balanced wines. Uh, I know that we, it, it's kind of funny because when I first started making wines uh, 30 some years ago, uh, it felt like we were near the end of the picking cycle and today, I feel like we're near the beginning of the picking cycle because we're picking, you know, it's not that right. we're, we're picking basically for longer term, better balance on the wines. Right. Now, Alex, you're tasked with the tradition of the wine, but you're also tasked now with the winemaking. Um, how does that go? You follow the recipe, you make suggestions, you tweak it. It's good the way it is. There's a groundswell towards your... If if it's not broken, don't fix it. I guess no. But uh, I've I've been having my imprint on the wine since 2014, and um, yeah, I don't I don't know. It's a it's it's been a humbling experience cutting my teeth at Quilcita. Um, I I don't I don't quite know how to answer that. It's um, I I I think you answered it by saying if it's not broken don't fix it yeah but, it, but, the at the, but, at the same, but at the same time they've they've allowed me uh freedom to have as much input on the wines as i possibly want and and it just so happens that i'm i have already been making the wines that i that right. i love 
Now, Greg, you're probably at the table, the lowest interventionist. You probably set into this also because you're the youngest, you know, winemaker at the table and winery. Um, how do you respond to that? I mean, I think your approach is a little more restrained. Yeah, you know, I, I came from a sommelier background and looking for restraint. But, you know, I, I think the key is, well, I think the restraint Wait, thing. Wait, can I interrupt you? What's the diurnal? Diurnal shift. I don't have any wine left. Dream. But, 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 but there's, when you talk about diurnal shift or whatever, I think the word restraint with sommeliers kind of equals that. You it should probably, get five yes, bucks exactly, or yeah, whatever. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so that's a psalm yeah. thing or whatever. Yeah. But that's also your preference. Yeah. So but, if you're going to make wine. Yeah. But, you know, as, as crazy as I can say of some of the high alcohol stuff that you find in, you know, Australia or whatever, we can go the other side of mountain wine up in, in the mountains of France and stuff, too. I think the key is, you know, you can't serve all markets. You can't serve all masters. You have to know what your customer is. And, and you know, the, it, it's two sides of a coin. If you make restrained wine, it may not be ready to drink for, for four years. And, and no one wastes four years or five years to drink wine anymore. And if you make wine that's that's full boat, you know, high alcohol, well, yeah, maybe maybe there's some sommeliers in New York City you don't like your wine. It, it's, you know, you have to figure out, I, I think the most important thing is, is you have to say, this is what I want to do. If you have one variety and it's, you say, hey, we want to do mountain cold climate restrained stuff and I'm making Zinfandel on the other side and we're picking it at 16% alcohol, you're not making a statement. I think the key is know your customer, make a statement, and 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 run that entire statement through your entire winery. And I right. think that's really the, so the customer knows, hey, I drink a Gramercy wine, I get this. I drink Lacole, I get this. I drink Colcita, I get this. And, right. and, and I think that's really and what that's drives me. And that's why I have the three of you at the table. There's no comparison, there's no right or wrong. It's just nice, you know, for everything. But Marty, I want to go back to this, because we talked earlier about Napa wines, and that there was definitely a stage, maybe the parkerization, where to get the ratings, you make this big, unctuous wine. And when I asked you earlier to differentiate, in your mind, were the Washington wines always a little more balanced, never went for that, you know, huge extraction? I mean, a little of that is part of it, but... Yeah, I think, I mean, we just have such a different growing environment. Uh, we butt out later, but then you have this really warm, sunny catch-up summer. And then when you get into the fall, it's cool again. And it stretches on and on and on. Sometimes we're harvesting fruit in November. So because that cycle of how the vines develop and produce the fruit, I think there's a tendency to have a little bit more restraint. Right. Um, I mean, we don't, we don't really, we, we pick... Cabernet Sauvignon in the end of October, and many people would say, well, that's long hang time, but it doesn't seem like that to us because our October weather is down in the 30s at night and maybe in, you know, 55, 60 in the day, well, you don't really gain much sugar. You're not losing acid. The fruit can kind of just hang and hang and hang and not get too alcoholic. It keeps coming back to the difference in climate, geography, you know, obviously the soils which, you know, I think people should realize. I mean, we've kind of repeated the same thing in a good way, which is really the trademark, you know, of what's going on with Washington wines. Um, do you feel, this is a tough question for you guys. You guys have your wheelhouse. I mean, is there any reason to stretch out beyond what you're doing? with any emerging varietals or, you know, adding grapes or there's just no time or room to do that? Yeah, I, I think about this all the time. Um, you know, I don't know. You know, I we mean, just, do you, like, 
Sommeliers love Riesling, so do you want to grow some Riesling? I mean, that's sort of beat around the bush question. You know, I'd, I'd love to grow Riesling personally, but, but you know, you look at guys like Armand Deal and Ernie Lewison, and, and I'm not um, arrogant enough to say I could grow better Riesling than they can, so I just let them let them do what they do. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't think our best varieties are, are discovered yet. You know, I look at Morvedra in, in Washington, and, and Morvedra to me is phenomenal and, and as good as the best sites in France. And, you know, who's, who's not to say we can't grow Alianico from southern Italy right. or, or, you know, all kind of different varieties. Right. It's, it's, um, but, you know, I think we've definitely figured out that Cabernet works really well here. Merlot, Marty showed you a long time ago that Merlot works amazingly well here. And Syrah has a home. And um, So that, I, Marty, I, Alex, that, that's your specialty. I mean, you know, you guys have been making these wines almost better than anybody for a long time. Um, is the question appropriate? I mean, do you feel you have to, or you just focus on your strength? For, for Colcita, it's always been Cabernet-based. I mean, that was kind of the mission f to begin with. It's just uh, be myopic, focus on one thing, and do it do it well, do it perfectly. Uh, I, I kind of look at Washington, the climate. There's so many different mesoclimates that um, almost jack-of-all-trades, master of none, although I hate to say master of none because I think Washington wines are all phenomenal. I think we can grow so many varietals in so many different areas that, I mean, if someone wants to do a, a peak pool or something, then that they can find a great spot to grow peak pool and it'll be phenomenal. What do you say? Well, uh, there is a lot of diversity of varieties in Washington State. Um, you know, we started really more in the Bordeaux camp, meaning right. Cab, Merlot, um, and that in, in, in some sense that's played out and showed that, you know, we do those varieties well. Um, I think of actually the whole Rhone category as being kind of the new big successful addition to Washington because 20 years ago there really was none or virtually none. And today it's like the kind of the hot new, there's a, not, not only Greg's winery, but a slew of wineries just Rhone focused right. today. So um, I Going think there's back a to the climate and environment. It's good for that. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's, I think the the diversity of all the different kind of varieties that we do produce makes it a little challenging because many wine regions are known for a particular, you know, variety like Cabernet, Napa Valley, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, New Zealand, you know, uh, you know, Willamette Valley, Pinot Noir. What is Washington? So it is a little confusing in the national marketplace. What, what is the variety that Washington should focus on? And we've bounced around from it being uh, Merlot to Cabernet to Syrah to no, how about Riesling? Uh, but I personally think that's great because it's like we, we have the ability to make wines from so many different varieties and do them all very well. Right. That as a, quite frankly, as a winemaker, it means I'm cooking in a, in a, a much more diverse kitchen. But specifically at Alea Coal, you stay the course most of the way. Well, I think part of that is about we built a we built a wine brand that people knew that Merlot and then Cabernet was kind of at the core of what right. we did. And so in many respects, it's not that Syrah shouldn't be in the portfolio. We actually make a little bit of Syrah. Right. But we became known for those varieties. And so people out in the bigger world... Uh, look to our brand for um, you know certain style of wine that we became known for. I, I agree with all of that. Um, 
I wanted, before we wrap up, we're going to wrap up soon, I wanted to ask you about two things. Is the, I want to ask you about the customer and a little about social media. Is the customer changing? Are they getting younger? Or are they becoming millennials? Or you have your core? Um, do you see that? We Start we, with Marty. Okay, sorry. I sorry to interrupt you, Marty. Well, um, you know, um, the, world, the world of wine is more complex. And it's partly due to kind of a gl globalization of everything. Um, there's wine made all over the world. And all this in instant information available on the internet in terms of winemaking and grape growing skills means the quality of wine all over the world is higher and better. And that has created a very competitive marketplace and the United States is the target for uh, all these people to sell wine to. So we're selling wine into, um, I mean, they're just wine from everywhere on the shelf and so to compete, we have to compete on the quality of what we do ourselves. And um, I think because of that, it's a very complex world, but it's really also very fun because like, like I, I like to say, you know, as an analogy, we're like a, a really good restaurant. There are, you know, restaurants are dime a dozen, but the ones that are successful are the ones where the the input product is, you know, the, the quality of the fruit coming in, I mean, the quality of the food coming in the door. Um, it's about service, servicing your customer. Uh, it's about building relationships. Uh, you have to wear a lot of different hats in the wine industry to do it well. Uh, and But on the other hand, that's what makes it really fun to be in. Right. Um, the consumer, do you think, I mean, I, your two wineries mm -hmm. have a very strong core of followers and collectors and buyers. Um, do you see any shift or I, the I still? I'm, I'm absolutely seeing a shift right now. Um, I, I don't have as much experience as you, Marty, but um, and perhaps Greg can field this question a lot better being a being a master song, but um, our, our clientele, like our customer base, we've had some loyal customers from the beginning and they're, I, not to be cruel or anything, but they're aging and um, they, they're, they're stuck in this mindset that they have to lay down these wines for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, but the, the glory of Washington wine is that they're, they're, re, they're ready young. I mean, you can right. drink them, you can drink them young, but they have tremendous ageability. Um, and to kind of go along with that, uh, there's, I feel like there's this huge renaissance of uh, artisanal goods, and that being small wineries in Washington, or that being the case for small wineries in fits Washington, into that profile. totally fits into that profile. Yeah. And so I think there's still a ton of room. Um, you know, big cities like Seattle have a, a huge tech boom, and there are young people and a restaurant look, boom, which is and good. a restaurant boom. Absolutely, I'm not, I'm not, uh, yeah, differentiating the two sides by any means. But um, yeah, there's a there's a, a young population with a ton of money. That they're looking to spend, and Washington's a perfect market to spend some you, of that money. Greg, you started the winery later than these guys have been around. Um, did you? 
point to marketing to a certain consumer? I mean, did, in your mind, you knew who you were making the wines for? Yeah, yeah you know, for me, I, I knew that I was making, uh, I, I was looking for the, for the sommelier restaurant um, market. But, you know, that quickly developed into a, um, a consumer focus as well. And, and right. I think um, you, you just both just, just hit it on the head. You know, when I, people are, are, are freaking out, like, oh, millennials don't drink wine. Well, wait a second, let's think about what they drink. When I was 21, 22, what did I drink? I drank pil like cheap Pilsner from Milwaukee. And what did I drink for, for spirits? I drank Absolute, you know, one of basically 10 different brands. So let's think of just like the IPA world. You know, these 25-year-olds are drinking 37 different IPAs from Sonoma alone, and they know the difference between every single one of them. There's a story. I mean, I mean how could this not set up us as wine people better? Because if you can learn the 37 different IPAs or, or sour beers that are made in Sonoma, you can learn Red Mountain, Walla Walla, Horse Seven Hills, so on and so on. And I think that that as these, these generations get older and, and start moving on to wine, that that they're going to be so used to, uh, to drinking this and drinking that and, and changing around. And they're not just going to be, hey, I only drink Merlot. Hey, I only drink Cabernet. I only drink Pinot Noir. I, I think it's just going to be a beautiful future for for everyone drinking wine going forward and selling wine going forward. Well, I think I, you I think you hit on two things. I think people are looking for a story you know, and an experience, and all of you provide that. I mean, you know, you've been at it a while. Quilcita's been at it. You know, Greg's aware of it. People want a story. They want an experience, and they're looking very closely into it. You know, and all you guys come up with the goods in that sense. Um, you know, if you want artisanally made wine, you want a story behind it. I mean, you guys are the people doing all of that. The last thing on social media. Any effect? Do you use it? Are you sorry you're not using it as much as you should? You don't use it? You don't care? Marty, you don't need well, it? Well, uh, no, I think, I think we definitely need it. It's a growing platform. Um, we're trying to engage, you know, we're engage our consumer direct sales and through social media, you know, you've got a, a much bigger audience. Um, Fortunately, I'm not the one really steering the ship there. I've it's got okay. some, I, I, I have some younger people who really know what they're doing that are helping us in that arena. Um, but I, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that uh, everybody's got a cell phone in their hand. Everybody's using all these new social media platforms. Uh, it's amazing what you can do today. You know, take a picture of any wine bottle and it can pop up the history, how it was made, what the reviews were, what's the best price in the national marketplace. I mean, all this information is immediately at your fingertips. So if you're not if you're not dealing with that, um, you know, you're you're going to lose ground. So I think you have to be savvy of of all this new opportunity and include it, build it into your platform. Same. I mean, you're not. That's not your gig, but what yeah, are you as, seeing? Yeah, as, as Marty said, unfortunately, I don't have the reins to our social media accounts. Um, I'd, I'd love to take it over and uh, put put my uh, two cents into it. but You may not have to. Yeah, I mean, there I, may I, not be enough wine for the I market. Think I think one of the great things about Washington is that we, we don't have that air of stuffiness about us um, that some other regions tend to have. Uh, we're all very down-to-earth people up here, and I I think the consumer appreciates that. At least I do as a consumer. Um, That's part of the story. At, when I'm looking at uh, the social media accounts of all these wineries, I don't see. I'm not inundated with advertisements. I see people. I see um, I see people. Videos of people 
doing stuff in the in the cellar, and that's that's the thing that really gets me. Right. It's, it's a there's it's discovery a, there. There's yeah, not just promotion. Exactly, and all it's that. a story that right. that it's being told, and it, it engages you. It, it causes you to stop. That's what you're looking for is right. is to scroll through your news feed and then. Okay, here's something cool. Here's here's Greg the doing a story on like why he's racking yeah. you, something. You, you started the winery, you know, in the era of when social media, and as a psalm, you were probably you know flicking around on it a lot. Yeah, you know, we 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 use Instagram. We're moving um, very quickly into video and live streaming and stuff like that. And but I but I think you've, you've summed it up perfectly. You got to tell a story, and it's funny though because I, I like to tell not only the winery story but also kind of like the psalm restaurant lifestyle story. And I was recently in Europe with the Washington Wine Commission um, promoting our wine in Europe. And I was taking pictures of being in Europe. And my neighbors came over to the house because something had been delivered accidentally to their house. And they were like, right. hey, we know that Greg is in Europe, but we want to make sure that you got this. And my wife called me. She's like, could you please stop posting until you get back? That's because right. people know I'm alone in the That's house. funny. So uh, we, we needed to adjust our social media strategy a little bit. Uh, I think the upside will be better than that. Yeah. I right, Listen, I want to thank you guys for sitting with me talking about, you know, the best of Washington State wines. Um, we got a great perspective from everybody. So thank you to Greg Harrington. Greg is a MS. Um, he is the proprietor of Gramercy Wine Cellars and the winemaker. Marty Club from Lea Cole. Um, and Alex Stewart, who is the newly minted winemaker at Quilcita Creek. All incredible wineries. All wineries that, not just because it's Washington State, but which is why we're here, but wines you should be drinking. And it's not a coincidence why I'm sitting with you guys. I got a whole room full of people, and, you know, you're the guys I wanted to hear from. Um, so thank you very much um, for joining us on the Grape Nation on Heritage Radio. And we are doing On the Road with Visit Seattle and Taste Washington. So thanks again, guys. Thank you thanks, very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure.